Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. Wow, church, you guys rock. You guys are awesome. And, uh, you know, we had a uh, family fall festival here yesterday. And for those of you who served at that, uh, we got the team. Rachel, yeah, there's the team that served, I think, over 500 people yesterday in and out of uh, just loving on our community and caring for them. So thank you, one and all, who worked so hard doing that yesterday. And thank you, church, for 16 years, whether you've been here just a week or two or you've been with us uh, for most of the journey. 16 years ago, we were in a uh, very small lunch room at a retreat center in North Myrtle Beach uh, with a few fold-out chairs in it. And, uh, and I drafted every musician I knew in Myrtle Beach, called every surfer and musician I knew in Myrtle Beach and said, please come out and help us get this thing rolling, you know, and, and quite a few of my friends showed up, and, and now here you are. So thank you for all of the hard work that you have put into this and continue to love our community to Christ. Uh, just very grateful, very grateful for all of you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we are uh, we're really uh, blessed to have uh, Phil and Jan Strout with us th- this morning, uh, I've known Phil for quite a few years now, and I think the first time we hung out together, uh, we went to Puerto Rico, to La Vina de Maiguez there to pray for their members. And uh, I told someone I've never known a man who loves to cast out demons more than Phil Stroud. Uh, Every time we were praying with somebody, Phil would look at me and go, I think it's a demon. Let's cast it out, you know. And I was like, yeah, you're a lot more excited than I am about this, you know. It's, uh, I don't know. But uh, Phil and Jan are leading our movement now of churches uh, in America. They're national directors of the Association of Vineyard Churches. Uh, they have a wonderful family. They're, let's see if I can say this as an old Irish southern redneck. Are they Mainas? Is that it? Mainas? They're from Maine. You know what that means? Mainers. So uh, they're from Maine. They have a wonderful church there, too. And uh, the biggest thing I really, I mean, they're great leaders, but they're also absolutely authentic, wonderful people, genuine followers of Christ. And so uh, Phil's going to share with us today. He's got a great word. Welcome, Phil Strout. Thank you, Tim. Well, good morning. Happy birthday. It's uh, what, a, what a privilege to be able to come and uh, celebrate with you 16 years. Um, if you think about it, all the different places that this church has gathered over the years, different rooms, how many people have walked through doors just like that to come in, whether there was 20 chairs, 40 chairs, and 60 chairs, and 100 chairs, etc., and all the different stories that could be told. All the lives that when people walk through that door, no, nobody really knows necessarily what, what tragedy has just struck that family, what disease they heard on Friday that some doctor gave them a, a diagnosis of something and it, didn't, it doesn't look too good. If somebody walks through those doors and life is just beating them down. And they walk through those doors and they, they, they take a seat and you guys begin to worship and they begin to cry. That's a story that's been told all over the world. 
I love it when people come to me and they say, Phil, how come we walk into the building and, you know, it's just like we have a place just like this, or an old warehouse, and they say, we come in here and we just, uh, we just start to cry. And I'm sure that's happened over the years, Tim, on all, all the different people that have come through those doors. And one, one guy, he's a cardiologist, he came in, he goes, you know, he says, last week when I left here, he, was, uh, he says, I was just convinced I'm never coming back here. Uh, I didn't like what you said, but I totally didn't believe it. I do believe it. I didn't believe it. Now I do believe it, but I don't like believing it. <laughs> and he says, and I know what's going to happen. He's, he was going on into the church. And he says, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to get in there. You guys are going to start playing your instruments, and I'm going to begin to cry. He says, it happens every time I come through this door. He says, what, tell me why do I cry every time I walk through the door? And I just looked. I didn't want to give many, you know. I said, I don't know, but I think it's something they put in the coffee. I really don't know. I didn't want to say, well, it may be that God that you don't believe in. Maybe he's real. And I think he's showing up. And I think he's sneaking up on you. Because you don't have, there's really no way in our earthling bodies, there's no way we can download some of the encounters we have with the divine. So all of a sudden, the Lord starts showing up. The Lord is around. The presence of God is real. And we, so what happens? It breaks down our human spirit. It's a good thing for us. You know, I'm thrilled about this because I, I, I just wish there was a way. And maybe, you know, when we all see the Lord face to face, maybe there's a way. He's going to be able to show you guys a video of all the years and all of the sacrifice and all the service that goes on and how many lives have been transformed as they walk through these doors and they're just loved unconditionally because, because of what you guys are doing here collectively at Seacoast Vineyard. So... Uh, to Tim and Karen, we just say congratulations to you, to your staff, you guys, your staff, your board, and all the volunteers, everybody that makes this their home. We're just, we're just really thrilled with you. So, you know, in a celebration like this, I, I, I'm just, you know, going to be real honest with you. I, I usually can, I'm not a long, uh, I don't go for a long celebration. It's been a great 16 years. That's great, but let's move on to the next 16. So that's more, that's more where I want to go today. Uh, thank God for the past 16. Thank God for everything. I love it, and I celebrate it, etc. Now, on to the future. I'm going to put something up on the, on the screen here, just as, as my few minutes that I have with you this morning. I want to discuss two things that helps good churches be transformed into great churches. Two things that help good churches be transformed into great churches. I think this is a good church. I'd probably even say this is a great church. This is a church that's get, it's been getting momentum over the last several years. Tim does really well on, on, on social media, and, you know, I've, I've, I'm able to follow this from afar. Uh, you know, once in a while, we'll see each other at a meeting. He gives me an update on Seacoast and everything. So I, I sort of have watched, you know, when you guys got this building and all the, the rehabbing that went on and everything. So I sort of know that you're in a place of momentum. And I want to celebrate that, but I also, I also just want to say I think there's a couple of things that can jettison this thing forward into, into really greatness that really becomes a, a game-changer in, in a place like Myrtle Beach where you guys are drawing from three, four, five different counties and the influence can go from a, an awareness to absolutely an influence in the conversation so that when City Hall is talking, they're going to have to talk about Seacoast Vineyard. They're going to wonder, how, does, how, how is Seacoast Vineyard helping us? Well, how, could we, 
How could we co-label with them? And you guys are thinking, instead of seeing anything out and about the community as an adversary, you say, or, you know, a, a, an enemy or, or someone who's going to be against the very things you want to do, just say, no, people all over this city love the people in this city. There's people that work for a business, for nonprofits, and, and government, and civil workers that absolutely love Myrtle Beach. And the church should be at the forefront of that and actually seeing how they co-labor with everybody. So there's two things I I just want to mention real quick this morning that I think uh, is very, very, very important. The first one is called the prayer of indifference, the prayer of indifference. But we're going to have to work at the word indifference because the present vernacular, if you look it up, you know, in in a dictionary, you're basically going to come up with something that an apathetic understanding. Indifference is, I don't really care. If I say, you know, so we, we see some, somebody that's in a desperate position, and, and I say, but that guy's indifferent to that, what am I saying? He doesn't care. He's indifferent. It, it's, it's all the same to me. I, I really don't care. Indifference. But that's not really the root of the word. It's not the historical part of the word, and certainly not in biblical uh, 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 setting, and then in historic setting in the church, indifference actually is a phenomenal posture. Because the way I'm going to use it, and I'm going to take it out of the Bible, indifference is the posture that I do not have an inordinate attachment to anything but the will of God. So no matter which way the Lord leads me, no matter what God does, I'm indifferent because to Him be the glory. To Him, it's all for His service. It's all for the good of God. So if the Lord does this with my life, to the glory of God. If God does this with my life, to the glory of God. If God does this with my life, to God's glory. So I actually pray a prayer of indifference. It is a game changer in a congregation. It's also a dangerous prayer. It's also a dangerous prayer. I think, you know, in full disclosure, it's a dangerous prayer. The prayer of indifference sort of separates the line of, look, God, I'll negotiate my life. I've got some thoughts about my life. I have a brief hour on the earth. I might get three score and 10. I might get 60. I might get 70 years. But I've got a few ideas of my own, and I'd like to share these with you, God. And we do. We negotiate with God on what we're going to do on the earth. But I think if as individuals, and then, I, I mean, I can't even describe what it's like when an entire church begins to pray and call their lives to a place of indifference. Not of not caring, but no matter where or how the Lord's will is played out, you say, okay, to, to his glory. Let, let, let's, let, let's look where that comes from in the Scriptures. Open your Bibles, if you would, to um, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, very interesting thing that happens here. There's this young virgin that has a visitation of an angel, Gabriel. We'll just call him Gabe for short. Every time an angel shows up in the Scriptures, people are terrified, terrified. Anytime there's celestial traffic... It, the, the scriptures just say they were terrified. They dropped this dead man. Uh, you know, we, we sort of, I don't know about you, but there's a few times in my life I've said, you know, God, send an angel. It, give me one conversation with a true angel, and I'm good for life. I'll never ask for any more signs. Just give me one. Or, God, I need some direction here. Would you come sit on the end of my bed and really have that one conversation, and I'll never ask again. I want that one shot. Anybody else or am I the only strange human being on the earth? I would like to see an angel, converse with an angel, or with the Almighty himself. I want to get this thing straight, and I want my five minutes. But I think it's all bluff. Because in the Scriptures, 
when the angels make an appearance, they always say, don't be afraid. There's a reason for that. I think it's, I think it's just scary. I, think it's, I don't think we have the soft, software and hardware to download when the, when the divine and the celestial come into contact with the earthlings. There seems to be an overload for the earthlings. Now, I'm just giving you an introduction to this poor young lady. It says here, uh, I'm going to just read through real quick. The angel Gabriel comes <clears throat> to Mary. I'm, uh, uh, let's look at verse 28, 128. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid. I'm going I'm to tell you something right now, so just calm down, Mary. Do not be afraid. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb. You'll bear a son. His name will be Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. You're about, you're, you're a virgin. You've never known a man. You're not going to know a man. I, the Spirit of God's going to come on to you. You're going to give birth to a son. And by the way, it's God that you're going to give birth to in the flesh. I'm sure Mary said, <laughs> I mean, what do you say when, when, when that happens? I mean, I don't know because it's never happened to me. <laughs> Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age and she she who was called barren, is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Mary said, look at verse 38. This is the prayer of indifference. Verse 38. Behold the bondservant of the Lord. This is what she's, it's quoting her. Behold the bondservant of the Lord, bondslave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What'd she say? Okay. Sounds strange. I mean, she didn't say that, but I think she's thinking, that's weird. She goes, okay, be it done to me according to your word, your will. If that's your will, this isn't the way I would have done this. I've never heard of such a thing. I never imagined I would see an angel that would tell me I'm going to bear the Lord's son and the government of God would be upon him and his kingdom would reign forever and ever. I, I... but if that's what you want, I'm in. I'm just using the vernacular of today. I'm in. I'll do that. If that's what you want. If, if you're the one saying it, then I'm in. Well, let, let's take another example. I'm just going to cut through the chase, and I'm not going to go to the disciples and the, you know, the apostles and all the in-between boys. Let's just go to the man. Let's see what Jesus did with this. Okay, Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, 39. Jesus is coming to about the end of his time on the earth. And, he, and, and uh, th- this is the model. This is the epic announcement of the prayer of indifference. This is why I say that biblical and historical use of the word indifferent is different than the vernacular of English and the way English uses that word. So I don't want to confuse it. Even using that word, I know I'm in territory where I have to explain it in its biblical and historical context. But Jesus prays the epic, ultimate prayer of indifference, where he basically says very clearly, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, chapter 22, verse 39, and he came out and he proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. 
And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. If there's any other way to redeem humanity, let's do that. If there's any other way, because he knew what was about to happen. It didn't catch him by surprise. He's about to sweat blood. He's in the greatest battle of his life. He doesn't want to die premature to the cross. He knows what's going down. And he says, if there's another way for this to happen, take this cup from me. But, and this is where he embraces the eternal indifference. Here's the words. You've heard them. You know the words. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. There's the prayer of indifference. A church that goes from being a good church to a great church is when, it's when this is fostered in the ethos, in the corporate spirit of a congregation. It begins with individuals. You'll never have this as a corporate statement until it's true with the majority of the people that make up Seacoast Vineyard. Were you willing to say, I'm not going to negotiate how I live. I'm not going to negotiate what God can and cannot do with my life. I'm just going to say, your will be done. I'm removing, I'm removing, in a sense, my right to direct my life. When that happens, I, I, and, and you can break it. I don't have time to break this down. I mean, this is a whole load. I, you know... I've been asked to come in for 30 minutes and, you know, celebrate with you your 16 years. But this, this one thing on the prayer of indifference, this, this could be like a, a weekend conversation and just to plumb into what this actually means. What does it mean when a human being says, not my will, but yours be done? To me, it unlocks a freedom, an adventure, the brief hour you have on the earth. We're no, we don't have to white knuckle it through life because we're not in control. It's not about us. We didn't think this up. I couldn't have imagined you know, my, my personal life. I come from a little small mill town in Maine. And the, the, the life that Jan and I, we've been married for 38 years. Um, we started when we, I, I know you wanted 38. Yeah, I got married when I was nine. Um, <laughs> started young. But you know, th- this, is, this is all we've a- ever done. I, and we could not have outsmarted God. We couldn't have sat in the little town in Maine and thought someday, you know, thought as teenagers and then we were married and that, okay, this is the life we, we want. We could not have outsmarted God. He's given us a life that is, is an adventure. And, and on the way, though, boy, it's been like, okay, what does the Lord want? And there's been times I've said that, you know, under my breath, I don't like it. I feel I'm being bullied a little bit. But I found it's a smart prayer. I've seen it change congregations. Well, I want it this way. But God, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? I don't want to fight for my way. I don't want to fight for my will. I don't want it, I don't want it to be the way I think it should be. You take a marriage. Take a marriage. Let's really, let's really get real here. You take a marriage where a man says, not my will, but your, 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 your will, God. And a woman says, not my will. You take so much tension out of a marriage. A guy wants his way. A woman wants her way. 
And then they both say, I don't want my way. I want what's best for us. What's best for our kids? What's best for the glory of God? I just want the will of God. I want the will of God. And break it down so it's not just, you know, oh, for, you know, by and by someday I want the will of God. No, I want the will of God tomorrow. On Monday morning, I want the will of God on Tuesday. On Wednesday morning, I want the will of God. Whatever you want. This is a game changer. This, is, this, would, this sets you on a course that uh, it's incredible. You know the, the scripture where it says in Philippians 2 where you give preference to one another? You esteem the other person more important than yourself? Can you imagine a marriage where the husband actually esteems his wife more important than himself? Right now the, the wives are saying, yeah, preach it, brother. <laughs> Unload that wagon. But can you imagine a marriage where a wife esteems her husband more important than herself? You're going to try to leave the door and you're going to say, oh, no, no, you first. No, no, honey, you first. You first. Oh, no, 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 you first. You're going, to, you're going to spend an hour wondering who's going through the door first. That'd be a good problem to have other than, look, it's my way or the highway. We'd never say that. It's just the manifestation of the natural life. There's a second thing that helps congregations go from good, church, good churches to great churches. And uh, if you want to put that up, please. <coughs> Do we have the second one? There we go. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Now, some of this just comes from just the hard knocks of leading churches and doing this. Um, as I said, this is all Jan and I have ever done. We literally started in ministry when I was 18 years old. Um, I wanted to marry Jan when I was 16, but my parents wouldn't let me. I met Jan, and I met Christ a very close time together. I knew that's the woman I'd like to spend the rest of my life with. I told my parents, and they said, you're not getting married until you get out of the university. And I said, there's just no way that's going to happen. I am not waiting that long. And they said, well, you at least have to wait till high school, out of high school. I said, okay, I can do that. So I did. I graduated on June 11th, and we got married June 14th. I waited three days. <laughs> we went fishing for five days. This was 1975, and then after those five days, we took our backpacks and zipped together sleeping bags and went off to Brazil and started doing mission work. That's all we've ever done, all we've ever done. Plant churches and help other people plant churches. Done it in Brazil, Chile, United States, helped in Spain, all over the globe. Never would I have thought that these two young people from a mill town in Maine would have the adventure that we've had. But along the way, I've watched congregations, hundreds if not thousands of congregations, and I've watched congregations that are good congregations that pick up momentum and they become great congregations. And there's two characteristics that really mark them. One is the prayer of indifference truly becomes the ethos of that place. Beginning with the leaders right down to the, to the newest person, not my will, but yours be done, God. I will do what you ask me to do. I will do what's best for the whole. Whatever is good for the whole, I will find my place in what's best for the whole, the greater glory of God and the well-being of people. I'll submit to that. And then, because you can have good churches aren't churches without problems. You show me a church that has no problems, and I'll show you a church I wouldn't go to. I want to be in a church that's into it up to their eyeballs. They're pushing the envelope so hard that there's all, sorts of, there's all sorts of obstacles. And you've got to solve problems. And you've got to figure out how to get to that next thing and do that next thing. Let me show you an attitude. What I'm talking about is whatever it takes. If you would, open to the book of Mark. 
That's just going to the left about half an inch. And we have this little scene, and we have a group of whatever takers. Whatever, it, whatever has to be done, we'll do it. <clears throat> Mark chapter 2, verse 1. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was home. Who's he? Jesus. Jesus is at the house. And uh, it's, it's a packed house. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. So they're out the door, hanging out the windows, the hallways are full, the rooms are full, everything's full. And then there's these group of guys, and they have a friend. And one of their friends is paralyzed. And the paralyzed guy cannot get himself, and they've been hearing about this Jesus, he's healing, uh, you know, he, he gives sight to the blind, he's kind to the broken and the sinful, he's like, he, he just, he's collecting the riffraff of the, of the whole, and, and he just does, he's doing miracles, he's helping people, he casts out demons, he's, this is God with us, let's get our friend, let's get Tommy, I'm just going to, I don't know what his name is, Tommy, let's get Tommy in front of Jesus, Tommy's got four buddies, and those four buddies, they bring him to the house where they, the rumor is Jesus is in the house. They get there, and it's packed out, just jammed, no way in. They can't even get near the door. Say nothing about getting through the door. Interesting. Verse 3, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get him, being unable to, get to him, to Jesus, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, and that goes into a whole other story. Sins are forgiven, but he actually heals the guy. But my point being is, these guys wanted to get this guy before Jesus. We know if we can get him in front of Jesus, maybe there's a hope for Tommy to be healed. But when they get there, there's no way in. They could have said, eh, let's just try tomorrow. We'll wait till the crowd thins out. We'll be back. They didn't. They knew that Jesus was important. They knew they had to get their friends in front of Jesus. But there was no way in. So what did they say? Okay, plan A doesn't work. Let's go to plan B. Let's go up on the roof. So they go up on the roof. Nobody's up there. And they just they start you know, taking away the, the hay and the straw and the mud and the poles that are going to make the, 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 form the foundation of, of that roof. And they just sort of strip it all away. They're digging. They're excavating their way through. Take the poles out. Make a big hole. And yoop, down he goes. They drop the guy in front of Jesus. Great story. But I got a question for you. What would have happened if they couldn't have gotten through the roof? They get up there, and it's just, you know, it's just snarly, you know, uh, mud with rocks, and they just, they just can't do it. What would they have done? All right, look, we tried the door. We tried the roof. That's it. Sorry, Tommy. You're paralyzed. Just stay there. What'd they do? They'd have gone through a wall. They would have gone, okay, I got an idea. Let's just dig a hole outside the wall. We will burrow a hole underneath the floor, and we'll, we'll make our way up through, and we'll pop this guy right up in front of Jesus. <laughs> if that doesn't work, we'll take a rope, we'll get a couple of strong donkeys, and we'll pull that wall down. It's like out of a John Wayne movie. I thought they, they would have thought it up, something like that. And they break that guy out of jail. They're, they're going to rip the wall away. This is the point. Christians, li listen. To reach a place like Myrtle Beach and the four or five counties that surround you, Without a posture of whatever it takes, 
obstacles will always deter a church. And, and when, you, when you begin to say, with ingenuity, whatever it takes, then you'll be good. I'm indifferent. Whatever the Lord wants with my life, I'm good. And then whatever it takes. Now, I think I've got, do I have a few more minutes? All right, I, I, I don't want to go over. I don't want to keep these guys from whatever the next thing you're doing. Uh, probably going to go watch like Patriots or the Red Sox or something like that, right? Uh, I want to tell you two, two very, very quick stories that really illustrate this whole thing. I came across a writer several years ago as a young Jesuit uh, writer, and it, uh, maybe a decade ago, actually, and just his writing just inflamed in my heart a passion to research how, how a mindset, a chip that I saw in this religious order through history. And this guy started out as a seminarian, and he was dedicated to basically being a priest his entire life and take a vow of poverty and serve God as, as a Jesuit. And as he got into it, in, in several years into his seminary life, in his, his novitiate, in his, in his process of being trained, he just realized that um, that's not... Uh, that I, I thought I was going to do this, but not my will, but yours be done. I want to be a priest. I want to be, you know, celibate. I want to be, uh, I want to have, uh, you know, a vow of poverty. And the Lord says, yes, but I need somebody like you in the world of finances. Finances. I'm a seminarian. I'm a theologian. I, you know, I didn't go to, you know, the University of Chicago. I don't know the Chicago boys. I don't, I, I haven't gone to MIT. I haven't gone to these, you know, great schools of the world. I, I'm, a, I'm a seminarian. I'm a, I'm a Jesuit. He says, yeah, and I can use somebody like you. Long story short is this guy becomes the general manager of J.P. Morgan. Have you heard of J.P. Morgan? A little bank. He's got a few billion, gazillion, trillion, billion dollars. I mean, they control maybe a seventh of the world's wealth and money. It's an, this incredible financial institution all over the world. He becomes the general manager in New York, London, Tokyo, I think... Um, Singapore and Hong Kong. He becomes part of their managing team in the Pacific Rim and has a 17-year run. Now, you know in 17 years as a general manager, J.P. Morgan, you're putting some change in your pocket. You can hardly call that a vow of poverty. I mean, you know, every payday is ching, 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 money, 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 big, serious money. But to him, it was the same as having an assignment as a bricklayer because in his preparation, he had prayed the prayer of indifference and to him, to be a millionaire was the same as being a bricklayer, if I'm doing it to God's glory, and it's the assignment that I have. Then you have another guy. In 1929, he take, he, he's praying the same prayer of indifference, and he's saying whatever it takes. He's taking these principles, and as a young seminarian, he reads a letter, and the letter is a letter, an open letter to the Catholic Church from the Pope, 1929, with 12 years post-Bolshevik Revolution, and it's basically recruiting young religious workers for Russia. Dial up the context. Twelve years after the Bolshevik Revolution, there were no religious workers in Russia. They had all been murdered, exiled, or imprisoned. But somebody had the foresight to say, we need to train another generation of workers, so we need to have them now. This guy's a seminarian, 1929, and he literally volunteers for that assignment on the day he, had that, he heard that letter, he was a kid in the, in, in the seminary class. He goes, 10 years of preparation. 
just saying, yes, someday I'm going I'm to learn, I'm going to learn the religious rites and the, and the Eastern rite and, and being able to do it in the Russian language. I'm going to learn the ways of the church. I'm going to be able to minister the Eastern rites and I will be a religious worker in Russia someday. Here am I, God send me. And, but as you know, it was 10 years. There was nobody getting in and out. I mean, just the, the whole propaganda of atheism and anti-God, the whole thing. He's on the border of Russia in 1939 when Germany invades Poland, beginning of World War II, and just a flood of thousands of Polish people go into Russia, and he says, here's my opening. I could go into Russia. There's no border crossing. Just literally thousands of people fleeing the Nazis were fleeing into Russia and he's amongst them. Now, he's a priest. He wants to minister to the Russian people. He didn't dare to tell anybody for the first year because they, they were killing or throwing them in prison or, or just doing away with them. There was no freedom of religion whatsoever. She just kept his mouth shut and was trying to learn the way and worked in a logging camp. Then the day that Germany invaded Russia, or a year later, the day Germany invaded Russia, the KGB or the acting KGB in that day came and arrested him. They knew all along that he was a priest. They thought he was a spy for Germany. They arrested him. He spent the next five years in solitary confinement in Lubyanka prison in, in Red Square in, 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 uh, in, uh, at the Kremlin, or, or in Red Square, so there's a prison in Lubyanka. Five years, and after five years, they just tortured and beat and psychologically tortured him, and now they're charging him for being a spy for the Vatican. And so his sentence was just an executive sentence. There was no trial. He was 15 years of hard labor in the gulags in Siberia. So this priest spent the next 15 years in the most hellish conditions that you can imagine, where the temperature, the average temperature is 25 and 30 below zero. I keep it on my webpage. I keep it on my, my laptop. When I open my laptop, I usually go the first page in the morning. I go to Dedinka just to remind me to pray for the people that you know, live there now because I always get the daily temperature. It's like, really, 45 below zero? Slight winds? That's inhuman. Well, these guys lived there. They're hundreds of thousands of political prisoners. And this guy, that, and he lived there in those camps, eating morsels of bread and hot water for like 15 years and being the priest, being the pastor to all of those political prisoners. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in this. And, and he suffered right along with him. But he, he, would, he would hear confession. He would give religious rites. He would, he would do everything. He'd take them on retreat. First time I really researched this, he said, I took two men on a retreat last night. When I think of a retreat, now in my car, I think of the Hilton. I think of Sheraton. I think of hot tubs. I think of Janie and I on an escape. But he took them on a re- What he was saying is he would take them on 90 and 122nd retreats. He would teach them, as the guards would go by, he would have 90 seconds before the guards would come back by. And in 90 seconds, he would teach them how to basically live in communion with, the, with, with Jesus on the inside. It's an amazing story. Then when he got, when, finally, as 15 years, I mean, most people didn't even survive. So few, of hundreds of thousands of people, so few survived. But this guy survived to the end. He got done his 15 years of, of being, being the, uh, the, in the political camps there. So they said, okay, you can go, you're a free man, but you can't leave Siberia. You can never go back to the Shenandoah Valley in Pennsylvania. You will stay in Siberia the rest of your life. We're not letting you go back to America. He says, okay, where do you want me to live? And they said, in that town right there. You're a free man, but you can't leave that town. He said, okay, I will. So he planted a church. He just started being a pastor. He planted a church. A year later, the KGB came back and said, hi, you can't do this. We don't allow people to plant churches. And he goes, oops, sorry. They said, look, you have 24 hours. 
pack your stuff, and we're moving you to another city. He says, okay. If he knew the Lord raised up that group, he'd give him another shepherd, and KGB sent him to another town to live and pro prohibited him from being a, being a pastor. What do you think he did? Planted another church. They came back a year later. This is the second year. Came back and said, you're not allowed to plant churches. You can't be a pastor. We don't do that in, in Siberia. We don't do that. And he goes, oops, sorry. They say, you have 24 hours. Get your stuff together. We're moving you to another town tomorrow. He goes, okay. <laughs> he goes to the third town, and now he becomes a mechanic. He's like fixing clutches and shock absorbers on cars and, 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 and planting a church. KGB, hundreds and hundreds of people. The story's long, but KGB comes back at the end of the third year, and they go, we told you, you cannot do this. You, we're giving you 24 hours. Get your stuff together. And then the KGB says basically to themselves, this is, this is stupid. We are financing church planting in Siberia. <laughs> True story. They, they, they made contact with the, with the State Department of the United States and traded this man and another, and another priest, they traded them for two Russian spies with the, the U.S. State Department. You can research it yourself. 1963, this guy finally gets back. He left the United States uh, around 1930 because he had gone and been trained in Rome for all the years' preparation of the Eastern Rites. So here it is. Fast forward 33 years later, he gets back and he comes into JFK. Everybody thought he was dead. Nobody had even known he was alive since like the 1940s. His family, the, the, the Jesuit order, the church, nobody thought he was alive and until the, the, the Russian government contacted the U.S. government. So now he comes back and, he, and he's getting off a plane at JFK in, in New York and reporters, you know, they're all huddling around. Reporters said... How did you survive? How did you survive? He goes, indignant. He goes, uh, you'd have to hear his voice. I, I found 24 hours of interview with this guy uh, at, in the library of George Washington University back uh, in, in Washington. Um, and we, we called them and asked if and they actually sent me the recordings of this, of this guy telling his story, which is a Jesuit university. And uh, he goes, Survive? I didn't survive. Political prisoners in Russia needed a pastor, and I got the assignment. It was the honor of my life to serve those political prisoners. Not my will, but yours be done. Whatever it takes. Now you may say, well, Phil, you're, you're cherry-picking the big stories. No. He was a young man from the Shenandoah Valley, from a, from a poor immigrant family from Poland that said... Not my will, but yours be done, whatever it takes. This, and so his life was taken on this pathway of some really absurd pain. But he moved the cause of Christ forward. And this other guy, same prayer, same seminarian background, says, not my will, but yours be done, whatever it takes. And this guy's jettisoned into the world of, of money because of indifference that's what makes the difference in a church that's the way a church that's the way your life your personal life can make a difference on the earth today i don't believe we're just here by chance i don't think god does random your life counts myrtle beach the seacoast vineyard counts and, and, and we don't live in our great-great-grandfather's day. We're not going to live in our great-grandchildren's day. We live today. It's 2013, 21st century. Complicated society in America, and here we are. 
And I want to see a good church become a great church by two principles. Not my will, but yours be done. And a corporate attitude of whatever it takes. If we have to drill a hole, we have to blow these walls out, if we have to buy that parking lot over there, whatever it takes to fulfill the will of God will do. Amen? All right. I'm hoping that's the posture of Seacoast. Now, here's the deal. You guys have had a great 16-year run. If you will inaugurate, if you'll take these two principles that I've shared in these few minutes today, you take the principle of, of the prayer of indifference and whatever it takes. You take those two principles, you say, that's us. We're, that's, our, that's our daily food. I'll come back in 16 years. I'll, I promise you. You invite me back. I'll come back 16 years from now for the 32nd anniversary of this church. Tim and I will come in. We'll, we might be in Walker. We might be hobbling, but... <laughs> We'll, we'll come back. And then you can tell me, Phil, that was BS, or, wow, that worked. And it, and, it, and it jettisoned us into the next reality of what we're supposed to be as a congregation. So and if it doesn't work after 16 years, I'll come back, and you can holler at me. Or we can come back and say, can you believe what God has done in this second 16 years? Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.